0: Welcome back to an episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to talk to Troy Radcliffe, who is a uh, fisherman in West Virginia. And I know I'm, I'm going to probably get an email from somebody saying, hey, I don't want to hear from guys in West Virginia in the summertime. We're fishing muskies up here in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And to that I'll say, we can learn something from every single angler out there. And I think today's episode is no different. Troy's going to bring... Uh, I'm going to try to open your eyes on a few different things. Mainly, we're going to talk about jigging. You know, it would be one uh, one thing that is, in my opinion, very underutilized in both Wisconsin and Minnesota, and especially at this time of year. So, hopefully, uh, Troy can give you some pointers and some tips for you to uh, work outside your box during the upcoming weeks of the muskie season, and you can uh, put a couple of muskies in your net. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Brad Hoppy from Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And i not positive if Chase Gibson is around there or not. Chase, you still in on this one or what?
1: Yes, sir. I'm here. You can't get rid of me.
0: That's right. So now that Chase is around, I mean, he's pretty much like co-host number two, Chase Gibson, and we'll uh, introduce him from Musky Bumper because that's probably how many of you know him. Otherwise, he'd be uh, Chase Gibson's guide service when he's in West Virginia. And Mayhem's 10,000 casts. And I, from my what I understand, boys, why don't you guys give us a little bit of fishing report there up in Minnesota What's going on in the water, and you know how's your filming season going?
1: It's going really good, Joe. One thing that we said last year at the end of, at the end of the season was that we were going to try to expand um, states and 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 countrywide where we wanted to film some shows. And although we've had a, a doozy here or a doozy here and there, but we've actually got uh, a couple good shows filmed, and they've been from Minnesota all the way down to Tennessee, even so going to try to give the uh, watchers a lot different perspectives on a lot of different bodies of water and how we break down those water bodies of water and catch some fish. But uh, so far up here in the summertime in the Minnesota area, the fish have been a little bit stingy but when they do bite we are getting some really nice fish and some good bite windows um, to last about an hour and the quicker we can unhook them the more fish we can catch is basically what the whole program has been. Yeah, but
2: like Chase said, we have currently four shows in the can, and and four shows from four different states actually. So yeah, it is I mean, pretty it is. wild to think about. And we are going to travel out of state here this coming Friday again. So hopefully, if things go the way that they should, <laughs> fingers crossed, right? It's monkey fishing. You never know, but hopefully, we'll have a fifth state with a fifth show in the can. In about
0: a week time. Perfect. And yeah, you know, what are you guys seeing for water temperatures over there in Minnesota, Brad? I know that things have kind of been yo-yoing up here by me, and are you guys kind of seeing the same thing. It seems like anytime we get an extended period of heat, then we get a short period of cool, and it's been able to keep things, uh, I would say, manageable.
2: Yeah, it's it's truly truly manageable at this point. It's seventy two degrees. We've seen 70. We've actually been doing a little bit of night fishing here and there or fishing after dark, you know, after sunset. And you'll quickly see that those temperatures start dropping on that surface. So ultimately, I would say, you know, for the most part, the different bodies of water that we've been hitting, it's anywhere from 70 to 74 degrees. So being that we're going into, and it's hard to believe, the second week of July is ready. I think we're, we're through the big major curve. Uh, we finally started getting some rain. And some of those rains, I mean, it's been cold, cold rains. So that's definitely going to help with those water temps. And I think, uh, you know, at this time of the year, normally, if we were starting to see that 78, 79 degrees without any rain and big wind, man, we'd be in trouble. But right now it's looking pretty good to secure it for the rest of the season. You know, you, you never know what Mother Nature's going to throw at you. But I think we're going
0: to be okay. Yeah. Still got a little bit of time yet. You know, once you get to August, uh, nights are a tad longer. You know, typically you start to see a couple of those cold fronts come rolling through. But it's been uh, a good thing to see. I mean, beginning of the season, it was definitely a concern that things were going to be uh, looking, I don't know, bleak, I guess I would say, for like this time of year. But things are looking really good. Hopefully many anglers are getting out on the water. And if you are and you need gear for your next musky fishing adventures, make sure you check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. Or your source for—I mean, we used to be custom everything, but now we're—if you want a black and nickel cowgirl, or you want, uh, you know, a black and orange bulldog, or a white Medusa, Poseidon, whatever—you can find that at TeamRhinoldoors.com amongst our incredible selection of custom colors. And if you're looking for something special to trick muskies with big blades, then you should probably check out Musky Mayhem Tackle. And Brad, I'll let you talk about them. I think you pretty much covered it right there. <laughs> it was like, it was like four words.
2: <laughs> well, the thing is, is if you're looking for a blade, bait uh blade bait, you can definitely find them at com. And not only the, the trusted standards, but you can also order yourself anything pretty much custom. So get on there, go wild, get creative. You can design your own bait right on the website and, We generally try to ship within uh, 24 hours. So it's a great way to kind of explore and and be creative and do your own thing. And maybe you were throwing a a Poseidon, like you just said, and it's green and black or it's orange and white, whatever it might be. Maybe you want to do that in a blade bait. You can definitely do that right on our site. Otherwise, you know, if you don't have those creative juices, you can definitely find a ton of different custom colors right at Team Runner Outdoors as well. And the other part to this is, you know, you introduce Chase. Maybe uh, if you need to measure some of those fish, you can check out some musky bumpers as well.
1: Yep, yep,
2: sure. Uh, com. I got
1: uh, the regular size, the regular musky bumper, the fat boy, bump and go, and even a walleye board if you do some walleye fishing. And uh, if you want to do, if you have your own guide service or own business and you want your logo on that board, you just uh, order a custom board off the website. It's easy easy as uh, sending me your logo and I get the artwork done on the vinyl and stick it on your board. There you go. You got your own custom board. Do a lot of those for a lot of guys. and It's pretty cool to see a lot of these guys, their own artwork getting put on their board. And they do a lot of their advertising, especially if you're a guide. Um, you get a big 50 inch and your client catches or whatever your logo is right there on that board already. So no matter where that picture goes, it's got your logo on it. So it's a little bit easier to advertise that way. Um, But if you want a team Rhino outdoors board, um, Jeff should be stocked up here shortly, hopefully by the time this comes out. And uh, maybe a Musty mayhem board will be available soon if, uh, if Brad puts me to work and lets me quit fishing or makes me quit fishing.
0: So Brad, in typical Chase Gibson fashion, You know, we take one minute to introduce two companies, and he takes a minute and 15 to do just his one. Just figures, right?
1: (laughs) Hey, I'm a salesman, buddy. (laughs) He's got a lot to say. Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Mm -hmm. enough of chase, enough infomercials. Let's get our conversation with uh, Troy. All right. Our guest this week is Troy Radcliffe, and Troy fishes primarily down in West Virginia. And I know some of you are going to say, but you guys are fishing in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota and all over Wisconsin and, you know, Michigan. How come we got a guy in West Virginia in the summertime? It's because anglers from all over the country have something to offer. So, Troy, we want to thank you for being on our podcast, and hopefully you can uh, put some information out here so some anglers can catch a couple muskies this coming weekend.
3: Sounds great. Thank you guys for having me. I hope I can let you all have a little bit of information that may help out
0: well you know we're used to talking to chase so i mean quite honestly it should be pretty easy shoes to fill i guess is what i would say <laughs> i'll do my best yeah, i'm sure it'll be great <laughs> so troy you know first time we've ever had you on a podcast you're not a household name because you're you're just out there fishing right you're you know according to what chase is you're like one of the pioneers of west virginia muskie fishing so i mean it's high praise coming from chase and you know you're just out there you know doing your thing you're not guiding you're just catching muskies and loving what you're doing so why don't you kind of talk a little bit about your journey what got you into muskie fishing and then maybe we can we'll talk i mean i know chase and brad want to talk about some jigging stuff but we should probably also talk about maybe the state of muskie fishing within west virginia as well
3: okay that sounds good to me oh i would just say i probably got started into muskie fishing around 2009 2010 I'd moved from deeper in the mountains where I grew up in Richwood. There wasn't much around, but stock trout and a few little lakes that had some largemouth bass in it. And I ended up moving up to more central West Virginia, where, of course, the big lakes are, Stonewall, Cold, Burnsville, and a lot of the rivers in the area. I started hearing about muskie and thought I'd like to try to catch something a little bigger than a. 18 or 20 inch stock trout. So I just started chatting with the locals and uh, the man I work with, Danny Haddocks, he was into musky fishing. So he was able to give me some pointers and point me in the right direction. So one day I went and got a little bit heavier bass rod and two or three musky and started casting from the banks on all the different creeks and lakes and everything in the general area.
2: You guys have, uh, both you and Danny, I mean, I, I got to meet both of you and I've got to share the boat with you, Troy. So, you know, it's always incredible to meet new new anglers and, and some of your other stuff that you're really into is the bow hunting. So we share that passion as well. But, uh, you know, starting in 2009, 2010-ish, like you're talking about, you have done quite a bit of traveling, too. I mean, you've gotten around and you fished a bunch of different waters up here in the Northland, as well as uh, Canada and St. Clair. I know that you bounced around a bunch. What would you say between West Virginia muskies and some of these other states, what's the biggest differences that you've seen?
3: Biggest difference I've noticed is just how each body of water, of course, they just all fish different. A lot of stuff we're dealing with in West Virginia... On some of our lakes, it's just really dense standing timber. You go down a little farther south to Cave Run, Kentucky, there's a few trees, but not much. A lot of lay downs, some flats, and weeds, and river channels. It's just a little bit different than what we're used to fishing. Then go up to Lake St. Clair, and that was pretty much mind boggling to me. Get out on a body of water that large and motor out right what feels like right in the middle because you can just barely see land most of the way around you and you're just throwing baits out and reeling them in not aiming at anything when you cast that was probably one of the most significant differences of most bodies of water i've seen then a little bit of time we spent up in minnesota that's been a couple years ago now hasn't it brad
2: yeah i think it's been two full seasons ago
3: yeah, and we was up there in September and caught the fish up shallow and was able to fish these little weed patches in two, three, four foot of water, burning bucktails real fast. It's pretty neat how each body of water fishes a little different, especially as the seasons change.
1: Like Troy said, it's a super weird um, I, I know I know exactly what Troy's talking about because when I first came to Minnesota, I'm so used to throwing at a tree. A lay down, a point, just structure removal Us in West Virginia, we're always casting a structure. It's very rarely that we're bombing out in the middle of nowhere. And I know exactly what toy's talking about is where it's, he's in St. Clair and he's just bombing cast out and throwing them in. It just feels super foreign to us because we're so used to throwing directly into the deepest, thickest tree that we possibly can and getting our baits in and getting them out of it. Um, it's, it's a big difference between a open water fisherman and a, and a structure fisherman. That's for sure. I know I definitely struggled with it. And then once I started, uh, figuring out that there is keys to open water, there is structured open water. It's not just open water. If you really, really dial it in and think about it, um, there's, you know, you got your transition lines or if you're fishing giant weed beds, you got thicker patches of weed, sand patches, you always got those differences. So you always want to look for those differences. In the, uh, in the abyss of, of no structure in, in our mind. And once I started doing that, I started uh, catching a lot more fish up here um, in Minnesota. I haven't been to St. Clair yet. Possibly might do that this fall, so it'll be exciting, but it's just, it's just something to look at. There's structure, no matter what kind of, no matter what kind of structure you're fishing, there's smaller, detailed structure inside of that, that giant
3: structure. I agree with that. And I think you can also take the stuff that I'm, You and I have learned fishing these different bodies of water up north and take it back home to West Virginia and start focusing on some of, well, I don't know if you can call it open water because our lakes, there's a lot of river wider than a lot of our lakes in most places, but you can get out in that open water and hit the edges of those flats and those drop-offs and the end of the points that you just can't see and you're not used to casting to, maybe farther off of the shore than you normally would want to be their cast has to land right on the structure or right against the bank. They don't like casting to the open water out in the middle.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely know. when I was younger and I didn't even know, uh, I didn't even, I mean, I knew of you and you and Danny, but I didn't know you guys personally. And, I remember when we first started fishing the, the lake, we would see you guys fishing, and your guys' style compared to everybody else on the lake was completely different. I mean, everyone, including us, because we had absolutely no idea what we were doing when it came to a lake fishing, you guys were always doing something completely different than everyone else. You'd be bombing pounders and giant rubber out in the middle, and everybody else would be throwing a sewage or a uh a bucktail in the in the trees and you guys would be doing that but you would also turn around and start bombing off the backside of the boat i don't know how many fish i've watched you and danny catch over the years and i, I can tell you what i've learned a lot from just watching you guys over the years
3: well i mean it helps we went on a lot of guided trips with like greg thomas and it helped us probably develop a little faster than we should have and pick up a lot of tips and tricks from going on those little trips like that, then you get up back to our home body of water and start trying to incorporate those things, and you realize that, like in those timber patches, there's always an edge or a corner or an inside turn that will tend to hold fish, and you don't have to fish the whole thing. You just want to hit those spots that are holding the fish. Yeah, for sure. It's uh... pass, yeah, if it timber's in the middle of the lake or right up against the bank you just got to fish each piece a little different
1: troy is there uh i don't think we've ever really had this conversation is there anything that you've taken um that we do a lot back home to to these other bodies of water in the other states and stuff
3: that's a good one i really don't can't put anything together right offhand.
1: Usually when you're when you are out of town in these really far away places like Minnesota and Canada, you got Greg screaming at you and telling you to slow down or something. I <laughs> know how fast you Well
3: that's what I was gonna say. Generally when we're on these bigger trips, we're with Greg or you or somebody and just kinda of try to listen to what they say, what you all say.
1: Yeah, yeah typically when you drive that far you don't wanna play around with something that you wanna do. You wanna play around with, that you, you play around with that you know what works and mm-hmm. I know for a fact, I was like that when I first got up here for the first week or two. And then I was like, you know what? I got to start playing around with some stuff. Some stuff I found success with, some I didn't. So it's uh, definitely weird how different everything is.
3: Yeah. Well, I guess I I was just thinking on a larger scale, stepped down a little bit. A few years ago, Danny and I was traveling to Ohio and Cave Run, and we was doing a lot of the same stuff we were at home going up there, because that's what we knew to do. We'd, in the springtime, go through tubes up in the shallow stuff, and work it back, <laughs> catch fish on the tubes, or oh, you, find you a little weed patch, to- and oh, a little bit. I like <laughs> one or two of them. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: I, think I, I think I mentioned it in the last podcast we did last week about how much you guys are you phenomenal tube fishermen! It's all you guys throw. It kind of drove me nuts for a while, and then I realized that more often than not, you guys catch more fish than I do throwing a tube all day. So now uh, I've just, definitely adapted adapted myself to throw more tubes more often.
3: They're just so versatile when they catch fish. If I was going to put on a bait and know I was going to go catch a fish today, that's probably what it'd be. Yeah, may have to change a rig in it or add a little blade to the back of it or something just to get a little more action, just depending on what the fish want, but it's hard to beat the tube.
1: <laughs> now, uh, I know Jeff asked me last week, Troy, why don't you tell the audience how exactly you're working a tube? Cause I told him, but I'm not the best at it. I'm, I'm still, I would say I'm still dialing in my, my, the, the way I really like to work it. I, I mean, I know it comes used you secondhand as well, but it's kind of hard to explain with it, but uh, give, them, give them some tips on how you work it, too.
3: Uh, a lot of times when I'm running just a shallow rig, I'll give kind of a longer pull, probably move the rod tip five, six feet, let it pause, maybe let it dive a little bit on the slack line, then reel up my slack, pop it again. I mean, I'm giving pretty long pulls when I want to fish it fast. If I need to get a little bit deeper, I'll just give it shorter pulls and a little more slack line if i feel i need to get down to four or five feet which that's pretty deep for a shallow rig tube without really counting it down and working it real slow but i'll just give it shorter quicker pops but leave more slack line in between the on the paws that way it just slowly nose dives down a little bit deeper when i go to a mid-depth rig when i'm trying to get down eight ten twelve feet I'll kind of work it the same way. Maybe count it down a few seconds and then good short pops. You got to leave a little bit of slack line in there to let that nose get down unless you're just wanting to fish fast and keep it high. That slack line's pretty much key to getting it to dive and dart and swoop and change direction so much.
1: I definitely, I've, I've told Brad this, we've talked about it a lot, because the slack line um techniques that i use with with pretty much anything that's stop and go anymore i've i feel like i've got it really dialed into uh into perfection i, I don't know if it's perfect but it's pretty close to at least my style of fishing and i've told brad this before it's, it's funny that um i developed that and then once i started fishing with you i noticed that you were you were extremely similar to the, my style of fishing as far as Really fast, really powerful, and black line pops on a lot of your stop and go stuff. I just thought it was kind of funny that that uh, that you had done that as well, and uh, you learned. I knew you learned that on your on your own, and so did I. And we both had a lot of success with it. Our, our bodies of water, and I think it's very important. I think I think back home, a big difference between back home and up here that I've noticed is technique um, is more crucial. In our neck of the woods compared to to Minnesota, as far as, it's not a special bait back home generally. I mean, it it could be the best bait in the world to be a bulldog, and if you're not throwing it right, then they're not going to eat it that great. But if you know how to work it perfectly to what the fish likes, then you generally catch a lot more fish on it. I know that's a lot with everything, but
2: it, it seems extremely crucial back home for sure. Some of the interesting things that I've learned by fishing with people from all over the country, it's plain and simple, time on the water provides everybody with some experience and what works for them. But the remarkable part is when you start talking to other people from around the country and you start sharing some of the, the nitty-gritty or the, the in-depth hey. details, it's, it's amazing to me. So I one example that I could use is talking about open water trolling. My speed open water trolling has always been two. So I I go to visit with somebody from, say, Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin. When you're open water trolling, how fast do you go? They'll either tell you 3.1 or 3.2. And then when you start going to, say, like Ohio or St. Clair or somewhere different, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more east, you're going to start talking to people that are going to go four miles an hour, four and a half. But it's really crazy how those details – almost match between everybody and, and it's all based off of maybe somebody told somebody, Hey, you need to go three, two, or somebody said, Hey, you need to go four miles an hour, but they all have those details in their head and you can relate them from across the country, visiting with other anglers. It, it's pretty amazing. That's just one example, right? So you talk about slack black line, definitely slack line can be very effective and, and Chase has shown me that a ton. In the last year or two but uh, there's so many other things with it as well how do you approach your figure eight what are you doing when you go into your figure eight how do you finish that figure eight where do you want the fish to eat if you talk to 10 different anglers they might want that fish to eat on the outside of the left turn the next guy might want it on the right side um, but at the end of the day they're all similar in their process or the movements. it's all mechanical right? It's just how you finish that whole detail. So it, it's pretty cool. It's remarkable as musky anglers. I mean, you may have never met. You both fished 20 years plus, and you start talking to each other, and you're going to find so sim- so many similarities that uh, it's pretty extreme, and it, it's always blown my mind. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, it's very neat.
3: It's pretty awesome just getting in the boat with everybody, each different person and just watching how they work baits, especially people that are pretty skilled. You get, of course, you get in the boat with a new fisherman, they do things a little different, and sometimes it helps to give them pointers. But when you're in a boat with somebody that's caught a lot of fish, just to watch how they work anything from a bucktail to a bulldog. Everybody has just a little difference in them, too, that or something they do slightly different that can trigger a strike.
1: I remember, uh, I think it was the first time I ever fished with you, Troy. You were throwing a, a bucktail on a, uh, on a laydown. And I still use this to this day. And before that, I never even thought about it in my life. You were throwing a bucktail, and it's pretty simple, actually, but I really don't see hardly anyone ever doing it. And uh, you were throwing a bucktail on a laydown, and you're bringing that bucktail across the laydown, and, and most of the southern fishermen know, and I know Troy knows, is that most of the time, a fish sitting on a laydown will be right on the very tip of the tree. Sometimes they're buried in there, but more often than not, they're right on the very tip of that tree. So what I watched Troy do that day is every, every laydown that he came to, I never said a word. I just noticed what he was doing. He's throwing a cow, or I think it was a cowgirl, throwing a cowgirl over there on the on that tree, and he's just burning it, and then right when he gets to that, right when he gets two feet past the tip of that tree, he gives it this huge rod sweep, just like he's working a, a bulldog. Um, he doesn't let the slack get in his line. So the blades never stop, but it, it creates this the straight line bait. It speeds up super fast to like three feet. And then it basically just sits there. And then he goes back into his normal, into his normal retreat. And I tell you what, I've caught a lot of fish doing that, that simple little move that I've seen you do years ago. And it, <laughs> it's, it's very phenomenal. It works everywhere. It works on lay downs. It works on, uh, on weed patches up here in, in Minnesota you go over a nice sand patch, and you're like, you know what, there should be, the fish are sitting on the sand, there's a sand patch. I'll throw right over top of that sand patch, I get a foot, two feet behind that, or past that sand patch, and I give it that big rod sweep, and a lot of times you get bit right there. And what that is, is basically, those fish are coming off that lay down, or off that, that uh, sand patch, and they're chasing that bait, and then all of a sudden you give it that big rod sweep, Well, your bait's not both sides, it's still out there half past half away or you know. So that gives them an opportunity to eat that bait before it gets to your feet. And a lot of times they eat that bait right there on that big rod sweep. And most people that throw bucktails, they throw them out and they just crank them right in. I noticed Brad, he does the same thing in a little bit different manner. Up here, you're dealing with a lot of weeds, a lot of floating weeds. And I've watched him do it, I mean, every time we're fishing, I've seen him do it. He's throwing out and there's a, a piece of coontail two feet long sitting on the surface. It's almost like he's playing a game or something that he's bored because he's sitting there trying to cut the coontail with his line, like he's, <laughs> he's he's cranking in the cowgirl and there's a coontail piece and he's just slapping it with his line. And I'm like, how many times have you caught a fish doing that? And he says, oh, you have no idea. And it's just that little bit difference, um, little bit different cadence to where they're normal to see. I mean, every every muskie in, in the world has seen a, a bucktail, and guess what? Most bucktails are going straight. So that one little. Stutter step of the blade just pulsating a little bit, a lot of times will trigger that strike.
3: Yeah, I think the big thing, the reason I started doing that is just to get a change of direction. I've yeah. never put much thought into how much it sped up the bait until I'd done it a while. And I thought, well, you get the change of direction and the speed. And that's just a great tactic to get a triggered response out of the fish.
1: Yeah, I guess I didn't really touch base on that as much. You definitely, You definitely would pull it to the right you know, three or four feet, and then you'd reel up your slack while keeping the blades thin and Then you pull it to the left three or four feet. And I know I do that. I've done that a lot with topwaters, and I know a lot of people have done that. You get a follow on a topwater, and you start putting your rod left or right, making that topwater zigzag instead of coming straight in. It's the same thing with a bucktail, but I hardly ever see anybody utilize that when they're throwing bucktails.
2: I think the biggest reason though is people do it when they see a fish. And visually, with the top water, you can a lot of times see that fish. Yeah. But if you want to go to that next level, I think by changing the direction of the bait, it's only going to up your odds, right? No, that that means more work. Every cast, you're going to do that. For but, sure. but I do think that, you know, simple math tells you you're going to catch more fish because of it. So, Troy, I think we should switch gears. And okay. I think we should go down the path of jigging. And the reason I say that is I believe you and your buddy Danny, which Danny's an awesome guy. I've been around him a bunch too. Um, You guys kind of started (laughs) the whole jigging style of fishing in West Virginia, as far as we know. And so I kind of want to understand why you went to jigging and how you made those decisions on when you should jig and maybe dive into some of the detail on what that all sounds like and looks like.
3: Honestly, of course, we didn't come up with it. It was one of those random trips to Cave K- Run, Kentucky, fishing with Greg. He put a jig out, and he was jigging off the back of the boat, just playing around while we was casting crankbaits into trees or something, or bucktails. We was just fishing normally, and he had that thing out of the back of the boat experimenting, and then he got hit a couple times, didn't get hooks in him. And at the end of the day, he said, you want to try this? After he'd asked me two or three times, I was like, I told him not really, because it didn't—it looked pretty boring to me to watch, just stand there and jig that bait up and down. But finally, it was the end of the day. I hadn't caught a fish, and he asked me again if I wanted to try it. It was probably the last hour of daylight, and we was working around one individual tree that's sticking up. And he handed me that rod, and I—I didn't jig five minutes, and that thing got smacked, and I set the hook and. I remember looking down through that clear water and just seeing a big belly down there because <laughs> the fish kind of rolled up on its side. and it was just head shaking, the rod just bouncing. We got it up, got it in the net, and it was pretty heavy, 50 incher. We fished a little bit longer, didn't catch anything else that day. When we thought that was pretty crazy to catch a 50 incher on it the first time I dropped it in the water. But we went out the next day with Greg and fished all day and Danny ended up catching another 50 incher and we ended up catching five or six fish off that same spot. And we just thought it was a pretty impressive bite how hard they hit it when you dropped it. So we went home and tried to figure out where we could get a bunch of Bondys from. We went and ended up ordering them and ordering them from probably John Bondy himself, I guess. <laughs> Waited all week for him to come in. Next time we was out on the water, we had a couple bondies and three people in the boat. We thought, well, we're going to try it. We we wondered how it would work with our denser timber patches because we didn't think that we could pinpoint the fish as easy at that time. So we started out the morning, had one person jigging off the front of the boat, and the two other guys just went ahead and cast just to keep baits in the water. And after about 10 minutes of jigging, I think Danny caught a mid to upper 30s and then we took that bondi off gave it to somebody else i think his buddy chris was with us he put on the bonnie and jig for a little bit while i was still throwing cowgirls and little crankbait stuff getting down in the timber and he ended up catching a fish and we ended up doing that all day just rotating that bondi i think we ended up having two jigs down by midday and i think we ended up catching 11 muskies that day out of that one patch of timber and was just blown away how effective it was.
2: How did you go about making the decision to, I mean, obviously you learned something down on caves, you brought it home, where, where and how did you decide where you wanted to fish it that way, and why, and how you were approaching whatever it was that you were approaching. It sounds like you were in timber. It's kind of mind-boggling to a lot of people. I mean, jigging is not something that's talked a lot about. In the muskie industry And it can be quite effective And actually Chase and I And Jeff Schulte The very first shoot of this year For Mayhem's 10,000 cast Will be a jigging episode So we're going to go a little bit more In depth there as well But uh, It's maybe one of the funnest ways To catch a fish In my opinion Because when When you finally get that fish And it eats It's like whack I mean it's a It's a really really cool hook set And it's a great feeling um, but I want to know how you approached it, where you were starting. And so that people could kind of understand where you need to be. And then let's talk about the motions of what that looks like as well. I want to add something to that, Troy.
1: I, I want people to realize, um, the lake that we're talking about is my home lake there. And, it, and when we're talking about, we have timber, we have timber in 35, Forty five foot of water and it goes all the way up to as shallow water as you want to go. So we have tons of timber. Um so as far as just saying you want to jig jig timber, you would have you'd be jigging for a year trying to jig all the trees in in the lake. <laughs> so where Troy is going to get into it, I'm sure he's gonna get into where he decided where the best areas of that timber were to jig.
3: Yeah, well, what made us go to this? particular location was we've caught a lot of fish out of there in the few weekends leading up to that so we knew well we still had a feeling the fish were there and we didn't feel like going exploring and trying something new with a new bait and not know if we're going to get it in front of fish or not so we went to this particular patch of timber and just started fishing the corners where we knew the fish had been laying they just had been holding there for a couple of weeks and as we'd go by a corner, we'd get hit. And something, too, that we had to figure out was, well, how deep do you fish? Because when we was throwing, at that time, you really didn't know how deep you was fishing. When you throwing your cowgirl way out or trying to reel it slow and trying to count it down, You we were just guessing. But we did have our fish finders, and we was able to determine that a lot of the bait and everything we was seeing was hanging out around, around 8 or 10 feet. So that's just how deep we jigged. We'd put it down. We'd just pull out eight feet of line, drop it down, try to get it right on top of the bait. We didn't want to go below everything and just started jigging. And of course, I'd say most people seen the process of jigging by now, but it's basically just lifting the rod up somewhat quick. You can vary it. I generally go from about my waist back to the water, rip it back up to my waist, let it. Fall back down, and you want to let it fall on a tight line because a lot of times that hit will come about halfway down your fall or right on the bottom. And if they hit right on the bottom, they'll about take the rod out of your hand sometimes. (laughs) I have a buddy that he fishes them a lot slower than I do, and he'll, as the boat's moving along about half a mile an hour to one mile an hour, if you're really close to where you think the fish are, he'll lift that rod up head high and just let it go down really, really slow all the way back to the water, and he'll lift it up head high, let it go down really, really slow. <laughs> it gets bit a lot like that when I'm not getting bit jigging faster.
1: We, it, I don't think it's possible for you to jig that slow, Troy. Because I, <laughs> no, I know I, I struggle with it big time, and I know for a fact you definitely would struggle with that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I would, yeah.
1: You know, Troy, you are talking about depth there. I know that's the thing. Like, like when I was starting to fish the lake, and had got a Facebook to where I could see all the musky fish friends posting pictures of fish. And I know you and Troy, or you and Danny were always posting, like every weekend you guys have four or five fish on there. I'm like, what are these guys doing? How do I catch fish like these guys? And I remember you were catching a lot of them jigging. And what's funny, I still laugh about it. Back in the day, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, anyone that I would talk to when I was young young kids trying to figure out how to jig, talk to all the locals, everybody would say, oh, I'm not jigging. That's boring. That, that's the most boring thing you could do. And like some of them were really, really big trollers. Like that's all they did was troll. And I'm thinking it is no <laughs> more boring than, than trolling. I mean, trolling, I don't think trolling boring, but I don't think it's any more exciting than jigging. When you get bet jigging, it's even, it's just a blast. Like Brad said, it's like I said, it's, it's my favorite technique by far. But one thing... There's that nothing else you feel about, a hit like that. Oh, yeah. No, you can't. You can't feel a hit like that any any other way that I know of, that's for sure. One thing that you were talking about was your depth. You used to see the bait at, at 8 to 10 feet of water or 10 feet down, and, and you would jig like that. Well, my dad was a was a decent, I wouldn't say a decent walleye fisherman, but he, he fished walleye quite often. I don't think we caught very many, but he fished walleyes <laughs> quite often, and uh, generally, we always tried to bounce bottom, so we were jigging, you know, just eight-ounce, quarter-ounce jig heads and just bouncing on bottom all the time. Well, when we heard about jigging for muskies, we had no idea. We, we thought when you jig, you have to hit bottom, so I remember being over at Stonewall, and that's super thick timber, and I'd drop that bondi all the way to the bottom, and I'd make about two jigs, and I'd be... Twenty feet down in a tree somewhere and I'd never get that bondy back and I don't know how many bondies I have in that lake from the first year of me trying to catch them because of me losing them to the tree um you and definitely day, need a good
3: lure retriever
1: oh yeah need a good lure retriever and uh <laughs> know how to get them off those trees but I'll never forget it I, I tried digging for I don't know me and dad tried it for probably a whole entire year constantly trying to get one to bite and I think he had two bites and I never got bit and one day i seen you fishing, and you and Danny, and this was, like I said, before I really knew you guys, and you guys were jigging, and I watched you hook one, and when you when you set the hook, the Bondi came flying up out of the air, well, then I watched you, you you held your rod up in the air, and the Bondi hit your elbow, and you engaged your reel, and you dropped her back in the water. you're like, huh, oh, he's only really jigging with, like, eight feet of high now. That's kind of, I wonder what that is. And I'm like, well, he just got bit doing it. Maybe that's what I need to do. And then I think the next trip I went out, I dropped it down like eight feet, exactly what you did. And I, uh, I caught my first digging muskie ever, and I've caught a lot of them since then because of that. And it's just funny. <laughs> it's funny because that's, that's how I was. When I was little. I wanted to know everything everyone was doing. I'll, I'll admit it right now. You, you posted a picture of a fish, I'm sitting there trying to figure out where you caught it at, or anybody, not just you, just anybody. I wanted to learn as yeah. much as I possibly could. Um, I don't do that very often anymore, maybe a little bit, but I won't admit too much of that, but um, I learned a lot <laughs> from that. But that's a, that's a um, huge problem I, I've noticed with guiding. A lot of guys that are wanting to catch fish jigging, most of the time, they're jigging too deep, and, and I'll be honest. I'd say 90% of the fish that I've caught jigging, I don't have any more than than, than
3: 10 feet of line out for sure. No more than that. You just, yeah, you got to be above the fish. If the fish are at 15 feet, you got to be just above them. If they're at 20 feet, you want to be just above them.
2: Yeah. I think Which, one of the interesting parts there, what Chase just said, again, it's about details, right? And it, the more detail oriented yeah. you are and the more you pay attention, you're definitely going to um, you're going to score more just because you have, are part of that detail, and you know when you're fishing on the water all day, say it's a ten hour day, you know those last couple hours are when you're really kind of just you're maybe not all hooked up at that point, right? You're tired, you're worn out, you just you're not paying attention. And that's when things start happening, and that's when you usually lose a fish because you're not paying attention to the details. But if you can pick somebody's brain and ask different questions, and you can maybe listen to this podcast or maybe it's a TV show or whatever it might be, pay attention to the little details. And some of those details aren't always shared vocally, but if you pay attention and watch, you're going to be able to see them. Definitely going to improve your fishing.
0: Absolutely. Hey guys, I want to jump in for a second. So let's talk about the northern angler, the Minnesota angler, the Wisconsin angler. He's going to say, Well, what about my lake? I don't have timber. Is this something, is this, is jigging a technique that you guys will use, say, in the summer? You know, it's t- typically known as a fall technique, but is this something that you would employ in the summer in, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin lakes?
3: Well, in my opinion, absolutely. You can jig balls of bait out in the open water. You can jig down weed edges. There's, it's a very versatile bait too. As long as you know where the bait is and where the muskies are, it's easy to locate their depth and get it right above them.
1: You know, Jeff, it's pretty funny. Like you bring that up. There's some guys that are jigging up here, but like you said, it's a lot of times it's mostly in the fall. Where I'm so used to jigging all the time. When I first came up here, remember the first year I came up here, I was telling Brad, I was like, "Does anyone jig out here?" And he's like, "Ah, I jigged." you know, back in the day, some, but not really. And I'm like, ah, I'm just thinking in my head, oh, I bet these fish are just crush a Bondi because they've never seen one going up and down, you know? I, re- I I hate to admit it. I really haven't played with it very much up here since I've been up here. I haven't really had to. But I do remember the first 10 minutes of jigging here in Minnesota, me and Brad were fishing. And I think we were in like 12, 10, 10 to 12 foot of water um i dropped the bondy down i didn't go up and down maybe five times got whacked and i caught like a 35 inch or something um and that that brings another point to mind is i have a lot of guys like i said they, they think that jigging is a deep water technique um i have caught fish jigging well actually i haven't my my buddy cody has because when we used to fish and the fishing would be tough that kid would do the dumbest you would think would be the dumbest Techniques or dumbest things ever. I mean, he would just try the dumbest things ever, just because he's bored, basically. And I remember being twice. Once we were in six foot of water. Once we were in eight foot of water, and I'm talking the boat was in six feet of water, and he's in the back back there jigging. So like he's looking at his Bondi the entire time, and he gets he gets bit, and he catches a fish. And then another time we were in eight feet of water, and he's jigging, he gets bit, catches a fish. And I mean, I know with Troy. Um, fishing some clear water with him one day we were jigging and, and the water was so clear I could, you could see your bondi jigging down 10 feet you could see your bottom the bottom of your jig you could see the bondi down there and then when you rose your rod all the way to the top you could still see your bondi obviously and I'm just thinking there's no way in the world with me being able to see this this bait this entire time a fish is going to be dumb enough to come up and eat it and and that's just a silly way to think about it because now nowadays i think about well they don't i tell all my clients well you don't figure it every every day why wouldn't need a that's going up and down right there beside your boat those fish do not care about your boat so you can jig and literally anywhere you can cast you can jig i promise you that and i don't care how deep it is you can drop the body down and catch a fish and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but it's just one of those things dude, it doesn't work till you try it that's for sure
0: well, you know, Chase, to your point, you said a lot of people don't do it. So even if I'm on the water, but I'm not fishing, I still pay attention to the boats on the water. And I can tell you, I don't think I've ever seen any person, especially during this time of year, you know, present a jig. So it's definitely a technique where, I mean, if you're looking to show them something different and you're in, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota, this is something, like you said, that you can use almost anywhere. You know, uh, uh, Troy just, you know, explained it. Uh, deep water bait or, or break lines and things like that. And it's absolutely a technique that doesn't get used, especially in the Northern part of the state. I know down in Southern Wisconsin, there there's been some people, not some, I mean, it's been a pretty solid bite down there on a, on a couple lakes. And so I know they've been doing it, but I can tell you for certain, it does not get used up in Northern Wisconsin at all. And like you said, I'm sure it doesn't get used in Minnesota either. Um, it, 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 it needs to be utilized. It really does. Um, the
1: only thing, like I said, is, is what the, the biggest mistake people make is they jig too deep. No, no matter what. I mean, even and now with live scope jigging has it. The whole jigging bite has changed back home. Like, well, me and me and Troy's talking about these stories of us jigging back in the day, and him more so than me. Um, that bite then is completely different to now. Like now, it's it's the whole game has changed because there's been so many people jigging. Um, it makes people jig more with live scope because now they can see the fish. Whereas before me and Troy, I know Troy knows exactly what I'm talking about. You're looking up in the trees, just like wishing for a bite because of like, wow, this is, this is brutal. You're, you're jigging in one little spot and you're like, man, I really wish I get bit right now. But now with live scope, anybody can go out there and they can be in a, in a tree and they can see that musky sitting in a tree and they drop a bait down and start jigging. And I think that's really dampened down the opportunity to catch one jigging just because I think they're getting smart on it for one. Well, that's the, the main thing. They're getting smart on it. They just don't eat it like they used to, but a lot of people just jig too deep. That's that's all in all, you're just jigging too deep. But if, if they've never seen a jig before, Oh my goodness. Most, most places I've been to that, that they have, no one's jigging. I mean, it's been phenomenal. I went to, um, and it's not even just the lake. It's not even just the lake that, that uh, doesn't get jigged. It's like at in, in Stonewall. Everyone jigged the timber. Well, then I was jigging timber too. Well, then that would slow down and those fish would pull out on a weed edge or just a random point with no trees. More often than not, no one's probably ever jigged any of that stuff. And I would drop Bonnie down and they would eat that Bonnie just the same. So it doesn't have to be structure oriented either. Um, it, it's just, it, it, it's endless of where you could use it. And I think it's an extremely under, underutilized um technique i think everybody should try it no matter what sand cabbage trees open water anything you want to drop a bondy down it doesn't have to be a bondy either just drop a bait down and,
2: and start jigging he just said something there too jeff that i think is important it doesn't have to be a bondy, right no i mean 15 20 years ago what i was jigging was the uh, the shumway fuzzy does it fuzzy does it and i mean what a great bait it's a blade bait right and blade baits are used in walleye, salmon, and trout, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's another great way to jig. But you can also do, whether it be a Medusa or a, a Bulldog, the old uh, Big Joes, what else? I mean, Honestly,
1: honest to God, I've jigged about literally anything that you could possibly think about jigging. I've probably done it. If it sinks, you can jig it. A lot of things tangle up really bad like a dying dog. Everybody knows that I love dying dogs. I've jigged dying dogs. Can't say that I've caught a fish on them because they tangle up like crazy, but they're not, they're not meant to jig, but they do look pretty cool jigging as long as you can keep them from, uh, keep them from tangling up. But I didn't have patience for it at the time when I was trying that they were eating other baits way too well to fool around with a dying dog for too much longer.
0: How about, I was going to, before Brad jumped in there, I was going to say, you know, how uh, other, other options that you guys have jigged. Has anybody used the ripping dog from Muskie Innovations?
2: I never haven't, personally. Yeah, I I haven't either. I do know that there was a bite quite a few years ago now. When it first came out, there was a lot of guys casting it, and they were basically rip-jigging it back to the boat. But vertical jigging, I don't know of anybody that's doing it. I've tried it, and I would say
1: if I had to put a pin on it of when I would use that bait would be more so wintertime because they, it's kind of funny. They do, I'm going to tell you a little secret that I probably shouldn't, but the bondies, I believe, and this could be a confidence thing, but I believe the old bondies are much better than the new bondies as far as triggering fish. I've got a, a pile of fish on the new bondies and I've got a pile of fish in the old bondies, but all my old ones are completely shredded. And the reason I say this is, is because they're wider top to bottom. So vertically, they're taller. And I will say this: that ripping dog, it does exactly what those old bondies do. And I really should probably jig them more often because like I said, I, I really believe those older bondies, um, those older body bondies did better than the new ones. And the reason they do is when you, if you watch an older bondy, when you rip up, they'd go straight up. And then when you drop them down, they don't go straight down. Most, most of the time, most of the time they kind of slant to the left or slant to the right. They're not dropping in a straight up and down motion they're kind of angling down and those ripping dogs i do remember those doing that i think the biggest reason i didn't do it use those as much as like a bondi or the other baits that i was using is because they didn't fall as fast and this was before chaos weights or even the thing, so i didn't have i didn't add weights to them then but uh that was the biggest reason i didn't jig it very often because i couldn't jig it fast enough but like Troy said, there's definitely a time and place for the guy that jigs as slow as Moses, and there's a guy, There's a time and place for the guys that jig as fast as they possibly can. And I was just the style of jigging as fast as I could. And um, so I didn't really pee in on that bait too much, but it does work a lot like an original Bondi, and uh, I personally think that the older Bondi's caught a lot more fish than the new ones.
0: Well, Troy... I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with us. We very much appreciate it. And we hope that you have yourself a, uh, well, you guys are probably done fishing for for right now, I would imagine. Right. Or how's your water temperature doing anyways, before we sign out of here?
3: No, the lakes, I'd say they're pretty much to the end. They're getting in that 80 degrees and we're having these warmer nights. I don't think we're going to cool down back into the seventies unless we have a pretty good cold push, but. I don't see that happening in the next week or two. So the lakes are
0: pretty much done. We still have some rivers that are going to
3: maintain cooler temperatures and
0: you can get out there and float them. Well, I hope that uh, you're able to take advantage of some of those opportunities. Meanwhile, you know, preserving the fisheries down there, because I know that, uh, you know, Chase has talked about it a few times. You guys aren't getting, you know, the stocking that you used to get. So it's more and more important for you guys to preserve the resource, I would say
3: absolutely yeah it's a good thing people are out there trying to stop the folks down here from fishing too much in the heat it's we need to save everyone we can while we got them
0: yep (laughs) absolutely and so we want to thank our listeners for putting up with us for another episode and we will catch everybody on a new episode next week wednesday